Welcome to Looks Like New on KGNU, It's the Economy. I'm Braden Madavi. This is a show that asks old questions about new technology, even addressing questions that should have been asked a long time ago. We join you on the fourth Thursday of every month on the radio, or you can listen online as a podcast. Looks Like New is a production of the Media Economies Design Lab at CU Boulder. In a world driven by the buzz of artificial intelligence, there is a transformative technology quietly emerging, poised to reshape our future. And that is quantum computing. Yet, when it comes to quantum computing, the realm of quantum is elusive, even to the experts who continuously uncover its mysteries. To try to understand how quantum works is an ongoing effort and a difficult one. But the motivation to develop this technology is understood in how it can be useful. So picture this, a world where breakthroughs in drug discovery and development are accelerated exponentially, leading to life-saving medications and treatments for previously incurable diseases. Imagine scientists harnessing immense computational power to simulate complex molecular interactions drastically shortening the time it takes to identify promising drug candidates and enabling targeted therapies tailored to individual patients. This could revolutionize healthcare, offering hope to those battling with life-threatening conditions. Now envision a realm where financial institutions optimize investment portfolios, predict market trends with unparalleled accuracy, and revolutionize risk assessment models. This would potentially result in more precise investment strategies, reduce financial risks, and even improve economic stability. And lastly, consider a future where pressing global challenges such as climate change, the healthcare crisis, and other complex societal issues are met with ingenious solutions. Where computational prowess could facilitate advanced simulations, modeling complex systems and enabling policymakers and researchers to devise innovative strategies to combat all of these challenges. Where we can develop sustainable energy solutions and revolutionize healthcare delivery worldwide. Powerful technology gets us to this world. Quantum computing might just be that tool. In today's episode, we invite you to explore the mind-bending possibilities of quantum computing as we speak with Rowan Wu. Rowan is a product manager with Q-Control, a company accelerating the path for quantum computing to become useful. Q-Control has received numerous awards for their innovation, is an inaugural member of the IBM Quantum Startup Network for over five years, and has been featured in The Economist, Forbes, and more. We will be exploring quantum computing by touching on how it works, the impact it could have on people, economies, and society as a whole. Join us as we delve into the remarkable technology of quantum computing and seek to better understand if quantum computing holds the key to solving some of humanity's most pressing problems. And with that, I take great pleasure in introducing Rowan Wu. Rowan, how are you today? I'm doing great, Brayden. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to have you on the show. For those of you who are tuning in, you know that our show loves to explore new technology, but the ways that old philosophies permeate even as we are in the midst of these new developments. We are in for a real treat today. 
we could not be more excited to talk about the field of quantum computing and speak about someone who is in the industry. You know, just right there, I'm sure a lot of people are probably wondering, what is quantum computing? Quantum is a term that has been thrown around, and we've probably heard it throughout our lives. But most people, I'd say, I, I speak for myself, have no clue what that even means. So Rowan, would you mind just going ahead and for the listeners at home, just giving a high level overview and explanation of what is quantum, what is quantum computing and you know what's even going on there? Yeah, definitely, for sure. And yeah, just for uh, clarification with listeners, my background really isn't in quantum physics or mechanics. And so, you know, high level is uh, really the perfect place for me to be. And we'll kind of uh, dive in from there. So quantum uh, computing is basically replacing the classical part of classical bits with this thing called qubits. And so that's really the essential building block of what a quantum computer is. So quantum mechanics, it kind of stems from uh, two really essential principles. The first principle is superposition. So this is kind of uh, broadly speaking, um, and this is a simplification. It's the principle that in quantum mechanics, a single object can have two states simultaneously. And so typically when you think about that as a qubit, it means that you can have the state of zero and one simultaneously. And so we can compare this to a classical bit, which is just used to store and process information. And typically on your regular computer, on your phone, everything like that, the bits on them, they either store a zero or one. And so the difference is that, you know, two states versus one state, that allows for a lot more data to be stored. Once you start putting together multiple qubits, it ultimately allows for a two to the n, n being the number of qubits, number of different states to be stored. And so basically it just means that a lot more data can be stored and processed all at the same time. So we take these fundamental principles of quantum mechanics and physics, and we start to build on top of them these um qubits, these quantum computers, and the advantages, you know, I'm sure we'll dive into it a lot more, but it's really that you can process and store a lot more information. Wow. So if I'm understanding you correctly, you know, it sounds like classical computing. And I've seen, I'm sure most people have seen at some point, they open up the the page and there's millions of zeros and ones, and you have no clue what you're looking at. In a classical computer, that happens sequentially, but in a quantum computer, that can happen at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Basically, you're totally right about, you know, everything on your classical computer represented in these tiny bits that, you know, you don't even need to know anything about. And instead of having these bits store just a zero or one, they can kind of store some probabilistic superposition of both zero and one simultaneously. And that, you know, probability is what is used to kind of determine and figure out the computer will figure out what exactly the state is and then use that to make some sort of decision about like what the computation should be. So let's let's dive into that. What are some of the unique advantages of being able to do a zero and a one at the same time? And how might this appear in someone's everyday use of a computer? Yeah, yeah. The main advantage is that if we're able to store a zero and one at the same time, 
there can just be an exponential amount of information that can be stored in a smaller amount of space. And so if one bit can store zero and a one at the same time, then two bits, it can store zero, one, basically two, the zero and one. So it'd be two to the two states. And that's four states, right? And so then three bits, uh, they can store eight states. And so as you can see, there becomes this exponential growth in terms of the amount of information that can be stored and processed at the same time, which means that for super big data sets or basically any problems that required an exponential amount of computations, that really enables them to be solved in a much more reasonable time frame. And when we say reasonable time frame, what does that look like now? And, and what does that look like potentially with the future of quantum? Yeah, that's a great question. With some problems, these are problems that if your listeners are familiar at all with computational complexity, there's a class of problems that are known as hard. And so that means that even the best supercomputers in the world would take years, hundreds of years to thousands, even you know millions of years to solve these problems. And so it's just not reasonable in any you know, world today to get answers to these types of problems. And so what that means is that the advantage that a quantum computer can bring is that it can take problems that would typically take a regular computer hundreds of years to solve and then shift that into the time frame of a couple of days and possibly even less with um, additional advancements to the theoretical algorithms that are used to solve these problems. Wow. I mean, that is incredible. And I, I mean, my understanding of computing and thinking back on what IBM was able to accomplish, I mean, the name of the game has always been more condensed, faster, you know, more accessible. Is that kind of what's going on here? Yeah, exactly. So quantum computing is totally going through the same kind of technology evolution that classical computing went through in the early days. And so a lot of the questions that, you know, to not, now we find them to be like totally solved and uh, we don't even think about how we got here, like what sort of technology is used, like what the fact that silicon is used as opposed to another metal, all of these, um, you know, things that we take for granted about how classical computers work. We're still kind of figuring that out with quantum computers and things like Moore's law, the law that suggests that every year we will increase the amount of transistors that are available um, by a exponential rate. That sort of law about, you know, being able to expand the amount of technology that we have in a space exponentially, that is also evolving and applying to quantum computing as well. Well, I'm, I'm really grateful that, you know, there's continuity that we can draw on to help our understanding um, as we're learning about this kind of all together. But I think it's important that we recognize quantum is, you know, a, a different uh, domain. It's, you know, there's a lot of unknown as you're, as you're getting at. So let's dive further into that. Could you help us understand what is it about quantum that is so difficult and, and what is, you know, the difficulties in, in learning more about this technology? Yeah, yeah. One of the core difficulties is that as we're deciding exactly what sort of technology we want to use to represent the qubit itself, we have to find tech and basically different 
elements within our world that can represent this quantum state, right? And so we look for things that can hold this state of superposition can be both zero and one simultaneously, right? And as we do so, we're looking at super small elements like a single atom or a single electron. And we want to keep these elements in this state of superposition. And one of the biggest challenges is that as soon as you take a measurement, then the object, it leaves superposition. So it either collapses its state to a zero or one. And so the whole time we're doing computing with these sort of qubits, we're assuming information about whether they are zero or one or what's most likely in this situation. And then we apply some, what we call gates, uh, just some operations to kind of change the state of these qubits. And then we, at the end, try and take an educated guess on where the final state is. And so this entire process, it's extremely delicate. These quantum bits, they're very susceptible to any sort of noise in their environments. And so that could be, you know, microwave radiation, electromagnetic changes or pulses. It can really be, you know, anything in that typically happens within the Earth's ongoing rotations. And so one of the main challenges there is to maintain the information that we have about what state the qubits are in without, you know, having them be susceptible to any noise, which then, you know, ultimately changes what is happening in the computation and then can mess up the end result so that we get something that is unexpected. So there is, you know, clearly just a ton going on there. And and one of the things that came to mind as you were describing that is I heard this quote uh, from Einstein. He encountered quantum in some capacity in his research. And when he was describing it, you know, the quote was spooky action at a distance or something to that effect. And he, you know, did not understand what he was saying. It was like witchcraft. So given that, you know, it's been observed and it's in our history that this was kind of around what's enabled us to get to this point where we can better understand quantum and and what's going on. Yeah, there have just been so many advances within academia that have really enabled um, us to get a much better understanding of quantum, but also to really invest more um, interest and overall resources into the academic study of this space. And so one groundbreaking revelation that has catapulted the investment in the uh, quantum into quantum research was uh, the discovery of Shor's algorithm. So Peter Shore in the 90s, he discovered one of the core algorithms that has proven that there can be quantum advantage or a speed up that shows that quantum can be used to solve problems more efficiently than classical computers. And so he created this thing called Shore's algorithm (laughs) named after himself that is basically a super efficient way to factor prime numbers. And before that, we didn't really have any really great way to factor prime numbers. It was one of those problems that is computationally hard. And this is how our basic encryption works is, you know, we come up with a a prime number on one side of the equation, the encryption service knows what the factors should be. And it's really hard for anyone else to figure that out. Shor's algorithm basically showed that with a quantum computer, we could solve this factorization problem very efficiently. And so that, you know, really showed that our encryption was 
susceptible to being broken if quantum computers were able to, you know, be big enough and be able to solve these types of problems. And so that really resulted in a ton of more interest and investment, uh, just because, you know, one, it proved out the capabilities of quantum computers. And then two, it showed this really valuable and pertinent use case that is a big concern to, you know, all sorts of banks, governments, all sorts of institutions that are using encryption for tons of different use cases right now. Yeah, we're clearly seeing the next evolution and and the next frontier of computing and how that's shifting and, and evolving. And just to kind of bow tie that, you know, the, the things that I'm hearing over and over, you know, efficiency, speed, doing things faster, things that, you know, could take hundreds of years and now we're doing them in days. To tie this back to um, understanding why this is so important, how could this truly just change the way that our world is operating and the way that things are, are happening yeah, it's a really great question. And it's a question that so many researchers are constantly trying to figure out at this point, what exactly, you know, are going to be the valuable applications of quantum computing. And there are a couple different areas of research that are really compelling at this point. So obviously, one of the big areas is encryption, as I mentioned. But there are also other really exciting applications that have a lot of potential within industries such as finance, chemistry, material science, energy. And basically all of these areas have problems that, you know, right now it's just impossible to solve them, even with the best supercomputer. And so take, for example, the problem of portfolio optimization. Basically, given a set of constraints, such as, you know, we want to minimize risk or we want to maximize return, figuring out what exactly is going to be the right combination of assets to invest in that optimizes for the considerations that the investor cares about. And so this is a really hard problem uh, because it requires, you know, calculating all of the possible options of different asset investments. One thing that can really benefit in portfolio op- optimization is being able to calculate all of these different potential options and compare them really quickly. And so that's really where quantum computing brings a significant advantage. And yeah, the similar kind of paradigm applies for chemistry in simulating the different interactions of molecules and being able to kind of go through all of the various different combi- combinations of molecular interactions. And so, you know, that has really cool implications in areas like drug discovery, new materials, more efficient creation of materials. And so, you know, a lot of industries are really investing in this area because of the various different exciting possibilities. But the interesting part is also that we haven't really figured out across the quantum industry what are going to be the most valuable applications yet at this point. Well, such an exciting topic. And just to, you know, hear those use cases and the potentials, you know, I'm sure people who are listening in are just really anxious to to see this come to fruition. You know, as we mentioned earlier, you work for a company, Q Control. Help us understand where Q Control fits in the world of quantum and what are you all looking to solve? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And I'm super excited to talk about this topic. Um, Q-Control, we are specializing in quantum infrastructure software. And so it's a really new category of software. 
Um, similarly to how with regular computers, you don't really have to think about the actual bits and bytes, and you don't have to think about where memory is allocated and how everything underneath the hood works. That's all enabled by infrastructure software that either lives on your computer or it lives in the cloud these days. And so that's kind of the area that Q control is in for quantum computers. Ideally, you know, people who are making applications on quantum computers, they wouldn't have to know about the underlying quantum mechanics and quantum physics that is happening uh, behind the scenes in, you know, these super cold <laughs> laboratories. And they can just think about what is their application, what is the value that they're looking to get out of the computer, and build for that. We sit in this kind of intermediary layer of exposing this type of functionality in a super easy to use way without having you know the user think about everything that's happening on the back end. And we want to enable organizations to basically take advantage of the benefits of quantum computing and scale them so that you know they can broadly be used in industry and you know really take it out of the laboratory. That is super important um, as we make that transition clearly. And so for everyone listening at home, if you find yourself in the market, you've heard it here first. But with that, we'd like to take a quick break. You've been listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We'll be back soon. Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Rowan Wu about quantum computing and the capabilities of quantum technology. So now that we've learned a bit about the mechanics of quantum computing, some of its use cases and applications, let's talk about the big picture. CU Boulder, the place where we put the show on, is very active in the quantum space as a research institution. Um, And even earlier in May, Colorado's Economic Development Commission announced two grants to further incentivize innovation and get quantum into the marketplace. From a national standpoint, we're seeing large public and private sector investments into quantum, which is causing you know, rapid growth. And it seems that there is a sense of urgency to develop and understand quantum technology and specific to this conversation, quantum computing. And though we're in the early stages of it, Let's talk a bit about how this could impact the economy and the marketplace. So we continue to experience the opportunities that the internet unlocked for various industries. But in your opinion, what promising economic opportunities could quantum unlock? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. There are just so many different things that quantum can be applied to. And so a lot of the big realizations in terms of economics will just be probably more so in the private sector and various industries, really being able to just solve new types of problems way more efficiently. And so I mentioned previously during the last segment about, you know, different financial applications. 
like portfolio optimization. And basically, this will unlock the ability to like predict stock prices more efficiently, to be able to really efficiently allocate resources. You know, that's in just one area of finance. There are so many different aspects in, you know, say manufacturing, being able to more efficiently schedule jobs and figure out where to uh, route logistics. A lot of the possibilities will just be in unlocking new applications within industry, as well as opening up a lot of jobs in, you know, both building out these quantum applications, but also taking advantage of the new possibilities that are unlocked and basically jobs in executing those new applications. And so one of the great joys of being able to talk with someone like you, Rowan, uh, someone in industry is what's the talk amongst you, amongst your team? And, you know, building on that, you know, we're talking about use cases and finance and resource allocation, but is there something that comes to mind that's like, yeah, we could be close to seeing that come to fruition? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. It's still something that is kind of open-ended. One of the biggest things left to figure out is just how big of a device of a quantum computer do we need to solve certain different applications? And so some of the ones that are within closer reach, given the current and projected size of quantum computers, are more so the financial applications and um, these sort of uh, transportation and logistics routing. So one interesting problem, for example, is um, in, you know, like transport routing, figuring out where the right stops to place. Um, So for example, like EV charging, a simple question is, you know, where should we place EV charging stations to be optimally, you know, placed in the right regions so that it's best for traffic and traffic patterns. So that type of problem is definitely closer within reach and something that we could see benefit from the advantages of quantum computing within probably the next few years. And similar problems that have kind of like the same underlying basis would likely be along the same time frame. I mean, with so many, you know, Tesla owners out there, probably excited to hear about that use case. That's, That's very neat. But let's, you know, let's go even maybe a little bit further. We're talking about a technology that is so powerful, and there are some really big issues in our world, you know, affect everyone. Things that come to mind are climate change. You know, the water crisis is something that I was just learning about through CU Boulder. They host a conference on world affairs and talking about that. And these are like tricky, tricky, convoluted issues. And sometimes, you know, we're shrugging our shoulders, like, how are we going to get to the bottom of this? You know, is it far-fetched or do you think it's feasible that quantum computing could have a role in helping us kind of solve these issues? Yeah, yeah. I definitely think that there is a strong possibility that quantum computing can be a huge tool in being able to unlock new solutions to these problems. It's really clear that for some of these issues, like, for example, climate change, we just need new technological innovation. Like, you know, of course, there are a lot of you know, policy adoption questions out there, as well as a lot of solutions that involve behavior change. But some of the really, you know, most promising solutions are in changing the way that we fundamentally use technology to solve these problems. And so one example that, you know, I really am excited for quantum computing to, you know, have the potential to solve is, for example, new means of decarbonization. 
We're trying to figure out how to make decarbonization an effective reality and a solution that we can use without many negative repercussions to our environment. And being able to model new ways of doing so and being able to uh, effectively use this tool, um, that's really something that quantum computing can bring an advantage in. Yeah. Talking about the magnitude of this tool. And at the end of the day, you know, that is, you know, those are the solutions that you know, we're really looking to find. And it's, it's very, I mean, comforting in a way um, to hear your enthusiasm and your excitement about that. But let's, let's shift gears a little bit. You know, a big theme of our show is to explore economies, economic ramifications. Um, we're talking about something that, you know, has so much potential. And in the, you know, in the big tech industry, we've seen beneficiaries and we've seen people who have lost out on the developments in that space. With the rise of quantum computing, do you anticipate a shift in the power dynamics within the tech industry? And if so, how? Yeah, it's it's definitely a possible outcome that we could see. I think that some of the dynamics that are kind of shaping out and starting to become more apparent within the quantum computing industry, and even some people kind of uh, have called it a quantum arms race. Basically, there are so many different countries trying to get a head start in the development toward the world's quantum future. And, you know, everyone's trying to figure out what is the right level of investment and where are the right, you know, areas of research to invest in. And um, right now, you know, like the U.S. had been kind of the traditional big player in the tech industry um, and, you know, really launched Silicon Valley and so many innovations have come out of that. And so, you know, now it's kind of a new area in which everyone can jump in and develop the best technology and solutions. And so it's definitely a new grounds for, you know, really all players in the market to kind of get their head start. And so we see a lot of investment across, of course, the U.S. The U.S. has also, you know, built an alliance with the U.K. and Australia to kind of team up in their quantum computing efforts and investments. And then, you know, China is a huge player and has built out a really strong quantum development plan that it plans to really engage in. And then, you know, we see also a huge investment from the UK altogether, and they've also built out a really strong plan for how they're going to work towards quantum development. So what a cool concept, the arms race. I can certainly appreciate that, you know, that idea. And building on that, how important is collaboration here? I mean, we know... You know, there's a lot of unknown, we're learning a lot, research and development, but what role does collaboration play? Um, and particularly between like different sectors, you know, industry, academia, government, when it comes to this quantum computing technology? Yeah, I think that collaboration is going to be a super critical part of developing the industry, particularly in kind of developing policies and frameworks. Um, you know, right now, a lot of that knowledge about the state of the industry and where it's going lies in academia and is being slowly transferred to the private sector. And then, you know, of course, there's like movement in the public sector as well. And all of these areas, they need to work together to figure out, you know, what are the standards that we want to put in place? What are the ways to proactively create policies and regulations and guidelines for different actors to follow? 
And, you know, only by working together across the various sectors and industries and countries will we be able to build a quantum future that is both creating value, but also equitable and diverse. Yeah. I mean, equitability and diversity, accessibility, those are things that we love to touch on in this show. And and building on that, you know, we've seen the way that tech has centralized power in a lot of contexts, seeing things like surveillance and data and how the haves and the have-nots have created a huge disparity. Is there reason to believe that quantum computing could have a similar trend that it centralizes powers with the access to these tools? Or, you know, contrarily, are there ways that quantum could democratize power um, and maybe undo some of those trends? Yeah, I think that in the same way as kind of this is playing out with AI, there are definitely a lot of existing paradigms and just shifts in the way that technology has emerged and certain groups uh, have gained power from it. A lot of that can be easily replicated when it comes to newer technologies like quantum and AI. And so a lot of the organizations that have the ability to invest in such a new area of development are the ones that are already in power, in a sense. In a lot of ways, that means that it's easy for existing power structures to be maintained by these types of new technology, right? But also, you know, there is a really exciting push towards the openness of new technology. So there was a recent memo, I think, from Google that was leaked. And it was basically saying that Google has no moat in the field of AI. Um, And what that means is that they're basically saying that they don't have any particular differentiator or competitive advantage versus, you know, other companies or even versus open source implementations of AI uh, solutions. Because, you know, everything is just becoming more open source and publicly available. That's kind of the standard now for technology. That means that there's also just like so much more bottoms up development. And it means that there's a lot more diversity and spread in terms of, you know, who can be a player in the development of new technology and who can, you know, suddenly come out and become a, you know, game changing agent within a new industry. I really appreciate as you're touching on, you know, the players in the game and, you know, who's in and who's out and building on that. You know, it's really easy as, you know, we're talking about this really cool technology, how powerful it could be. But as we've seen, it's really easy for this stuff to get locked away in academia, to get locked away in industry. And, you know, the people who have it, have it. The rest of us are kind of looking from, you know, outside in. What are some ways that we can encourage, you know, people to get more involved in this space? You know, obviously not everyone is going to become a quantum researcher and scientist overnight, but ways just to engage, to stay on top, to stay in the know that you would encourage listeners to to take on so that they can be involved. Yeah. Yeah. I think that I really encourage everyone to at least kind of uh, get a baseline understanding and just get informed about quantum computing and the field of you know quantum in general. And one of the best resources available, um, and I try to say this in the least biased way possible, is our educational tool, Black Opal. So it was designed by our team in conjunction with Chris Ferry, and he wrote this book called Quantum Computing for Babies. And so it's really simplified and designed with kind of like 
user centricity in mind. And that's what makes a really, you know, a really easy and compelling tool to really get from these super, super basics of what is superposition and what is a qubit all the way up to being able to program a quantum circuit. And so just, you know, familiarizing with basic educational tools like this, it's similar to learning a new language or something. You just uh, get kind of like the basics and an awareness of what is happening. And that can just kind of open a lot of doors and conversations in terms of just general awareness and being able to be part of the conversation in the future. Yeah. Well, I must say, of all of the terms that I might have expected to hear today, quantum computing for babies was not among them. <laughs> but I appreciate you know, the simplification of something that's so complex. And But while we're in this conversation about equity and, and disparity, you know, some of these divides and and particularly with like internet access and bandwidth and just the way that that has created so much disparity. You know, what are some of the ways as this technology develops and and goes further and further and further that we can ensure it benefits across the board as best as we can? Yeah, I think that one of the best ways that we can do so is just by helping engage with our governments and institutions to uh, work with them to develop the right policies and frameworks that will allow for diverse and inclusive industry. And so what we do at Q Control is we have um, relationships with the government, um, particularly the Australian government, but a lot of various governments around the world as we are an international company. We just work with them um, and help to, you know, provide information where information is available, as well as, you know, consulting when it comes to developing new policies or frameworks. And then, you know, make sure that as well, we're all as a workforce hiring for the right diversity and inclusion. And so this is also something that Q Control really emphasizes highly is, you know, hiring with diversity and inclusion in mind. And essentially, you know, that is kind of the building block of being able to have um, an industry with a lot of different voices represented that will then help to serve those uh, underrepresented voices when it comes to the actual solutions um, and technology that we're building. One is really like a top-down approach of working with the institutions to you know, develop the right plan that will include everyone in the future. And then the other one is bottoms up and, you know, making sure that we're including the right people where we can and allowing them to be part of the decision-making table. So important and so glad to hear, you know, you say these things and the importance and the emphasis that you and Q Control is putting on that diversity, because I, I do truly believe and I'm subscribed to the hope that you know, we can do things a lot better than we've done them in the past 20 to 30 years, particularly in this domain of computers and um, just tech in general. Um, but glad to hear that, you know, there's good voices and, and people standing up for the right things. So thank you for that. And we've got much more to dive into. But for right now, we're going to take a quick break. You've been listening to Looks Like New, a show that asks old questions about new tech. Stick with us. We will be back soon.
Welcome back to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio. We've been speaking with Rowan Wu about the economic impacts of quantum innovation. As you've been listening, we've been speaking about the fascinating world of quantum computing and the wide range impacts that it could have on economies, on people. But as a concluding segment, and as we were beginning to explore, we'd really like to know more about the future of society and as it relates and can be impacted by quantum. And we were talking a little bit about different places that are you know, exploring and developing this technology. And you know, it just begs the question, if there is a place, you know, a country namely, that is able to develop quantum in a way that's faster and they get a hold of it quicker, you know, what are the potentials of global influence, as you see, that could take place if someone's able to get that hold in the market? Yeah, I think that one of the biggest areas are really the impacts on quantum communications right now. So these are a little bit outside of the space of quantum computing specifically, but there are quite large advancements that are taking place right now in the fields of quantum encryption and quantum radar. And so these are kind of the tools that are used to encrypt secret messages, to communicate across borderlines. And so the ability to really like decode and break some of these existing methods of communication or develop new ones can really provide a huge advantage in terms of just being able to do anything that involves overall stealth. And a lot of that, you know, of course, is within the defense industry. And so, yeah, there are just huge implications right now in terms of overlap between quantum applications and like the defense sector. And so what we see is, you know, if one country has really strong advancements, then of course, they'll be able to kind of take advantage of the either, you know, developments in communications or encryption or radar that would then have strong correlations to, you know, their ability to just conduct stealth operations or to, um, you know, understand what other countries are doing. Wow. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it sounds like, you know, a security risk. Is there ways to to stay on top of that? I think that at an individual level, it's probably not something to worry about at this point. You know, a lot of research that shows that decryption of existing cryptography methods is still, you know, years away at this point. But then also there are organizations that are luckily developing towards kind of standardizations and new methods or like a post-quantum cryptography world or like quantum safe cryptography. And the at an organizational level, you know, businesses, organizations, governments, they can prepare and just kind of start to identify and classify their different data types and figure out, you know, how they can move towards newer encryption models when they're available. And then, you know, of course, organizations can participate in these standardization programs to help to kind of identify new algorithms that are resistant to the threats of quantum computers. So if I'm a business leader and I'm hearing this, you know, that's kind of a call to action. This is something that I should be aware of. This is something that I should be considering. You know, even without quantum, we want to be, you know, on top of our data. But, you know, it sounds like this could make it very easy for a bad actor to come in and, and decrypt security methods currently. Yeah, I think that 
as an organization, it's always something to be aware of in terms of potential threats. But I think that likely it'll be at the level of kind of these, you know, telecommunications or computing providers like IBM and telco providers to really provide and transition to quantum safe cryptography methods and that businesses will be able to kind of benefit from their expertise such that they don't need to individually specialize in terms of what sort of encryption standards they're using. So let's talk about policy for a moment. One of the things that we're seeing, you know, in the year 2023 is we're a bit behind the mark in the policy and regulation around AI. And while there might be some room for debate there, it seems like there's very prominent voices that are coming out and saying, we need to put a halt on this and whatever it may be, there seems to be like an, a desire for there to be some regulation there. You know, are there ethical considerations that are specific to quantum that policymakers um, you know, need to address or should be cognizant of as we move forward? Yeah, I think that to your question, it's not necessarily specific to quantum. But I think that there's always a need with new technology to maintain and strike a good balance between public and private investment. I think what we see from the model of you know, how AI has really taken shape in industry is that right now, nearly all of the development is happening really in the private sector. And so, you know, what that means, at least in the US, is that, you know, companies have been given the leeway to apply AI as they see fit and the public and uh, the private sector is kind of playing catch up. Of course, this is really a different case in, you know, countries like China, where, you know, a lot of this is funded by the public sector. With any new technology, I think that finding the right balance and making sure that the public sector keeps up with the private sector is just like the essential way to make sure that, um, policy is keeping up with the advancements that are rapidly going to happen uh, in the industry. And I think that that balance of public and private, you know, we want to encourage you know, the behind the scenes development. We want to have these frontiers move forward. But as we've been touching on throughout this conversation, it's clearly so powerful. And, you know, with any new tech, there is room for bad actors, unfortunately. And, you know, that's important that we stay on top of that. And I think as you know, we're discussing the future of society and the hold that this may have with any new tech, very natural for people to experience you know, some anxiousness around what this might be. As we're touching on AI, you know, how that has bred anxiousness in my own life and you know, in the lives of the people around me. How should people view quantum computing in your opinion? As a general you know, kind of guideline, people should look at it... Um, as a, a new unlocking of a lot of different possibilities and like a new sort of technology to become familiar with. Right now, you know, AI is super flashy and I think that people are still kind of trying to grapple with how to learn about it and what are the right resources to get familiar and how to apply this. And so um, I think that the best way that people can kind of uh, prep for quantum is just to be kind of informed and and learn about what are the advancements that are happening in the industry. And ideally, the industry and the academia focus on making this information accessible and digestible to the general public. 
And so it's kind of a balance there between people becoming involved and interested as well as the, you know, right education and the right tools being available to them to kind of get started and take a broader look at what's going on. And so building on that, and I know, you know, we're at the forefront of the adoption of this technology and and really of the development of this technology. How could quantum influence things like societal structures, things like job markets, or, you know, even the labor force, um, as you've been in, in this space, do you think there's ramifications there that are worth consideration? It's still far enough away in terms of a lot of very different uh, quantum applications to really be able to exactly tell how the job sector will change. But I will draw on the past experiences that we've had in the development of new technologies. So uh, oftentimes, you know, with the various different industrial revolutions that we've experienced, uh, just the types of work that we've done uh, have shifted very gradually at first and then quite rapidly as soon as the uh, actual revolution really takes hold. And so what we'll likely see uh, with quantum computing if it really does have the sort of impact that we uh, are all kind of excited about and trying to work towards, is probably just a shift in the types of work that people do. So instead of having to kind of uh, do some of these uh, suboptimal types of um, approximations or calculations that uh, really we hinge upon because we are unable to solve the problems that just require the computing and processing power that we don't have today. Uh, we'll be able to solve these problems better and figure out solutions in a faster way, uh, which means that we can move and start to focus on the new problems that are kind of uh, generated and highlighted uh, as a result of, you know, having solved previous ones. And so, you know, there might be types of work that are eliminated and new types of work that are brought to light, but it's still, it's still definitely really hard to say. And a lot of times, you know, this is really like impossible to predict with uh, even advancements in um, society and technology that are currently already ongoing. We are talking about something that is, as we've mentioned, early in its development, and I appreciate you know, drawing on your creativity a bit to uh, answer some of these questions about future impacts. And one of the things, you know, I like to ask about, and I, you know, I think people are curious about how my day-to-day could be affected and maybe not applicable here as, you know, we're thinking about something that could have these just huge, huge ramifications and, and big industries. But, you know, perhaps could you imagine or paint a picture for us like how quantum computing can influence things like the way we communicate or even just interact with technology in our daily lives. And perhaps this is way down the road, but, you know, could we expect significant advancements in areas like communication networks, you know, data transfer or things like that? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, I think that there will be very vast changes um, in these sorts of areas that you mentioned, like, data transfer, communication. Um, But honestly, those might be really uh, almost kind of invisible to the everyday person going about and using technology. Um, You know, some of the best technological advances are ones that you don't even really notice and think about, like, how is this being done? 
And quantum computing is really at that sort of level where, um, you know, a, an analogy to draw is like cloud computing. Um, when things started to move to the cloud, um, it wasn't super apparent to, you know, the end user that the uh, data systems had been moved from on-premise to these like large cloud data centers that, you know, run in the middle of nowhere. Um, and that's kind of probably going to be the shift that happens with quantum computing as well. It's like, we'll be able to take advantage of the benefits um, that, you know, new possibilities are unlocked. We can solve problems that, you know, weren't able to be solved before. In the past, even 10 years ago, it was impossible to instantly transfer money to someone else. There's so many different technological advances that have allowed that to happen, as well as, you know, regulatory advances. But the individual person doesn't really need to think about or know, um, you know, like this was unlocked by cloud computing or this was unlocked by mobile. It's really just something that like we take for granted and we just use. And so I think that quantum computing will have a lot of similar effects where new use cases and new uh, possibilities will be unlocked, but they'll kind of just, you know, appear in our lives and we'll be able to take advantage of them without really knowing um, that it was quantum computing that was able to solve this versus classical. You make a great point. And, you know, I think it speaks to, you know, how big this technology is and how impactful it is that it so seamlessly appears in our lives. And you, you draw that analogy with cloud computing and it really is remarkable just the way that it has become fundamental in the way that we do things I mean, the way that, you know, we're a lot of our productions for um, MedLab come out and just like how integral that is in day-to-day life. And I'd love to build on that by just asking you, you know, looking into the future, what is your vision for a society that is empowered by quantum computing? Yeah, yeah. I think that the main thing that um, will change in my mind is that we'll be able to kind of um, switch between classical and quantum computing, depending on the types of problems that we're solving. And uh, we'll be able to, you know, quickly and efficiently figure out, is this going to be better solved by a quantum computer or a classical computer? And sometimes it'll be a mix of both. You know, we see a lot of um, advantages coming from kind of the hybrid use of quantum and classical computing. And so ideally these technologies are kind of like interwoven into one another um, such that, you know, we're able to kind of just take these super broad problems, plug them into this uh, stack of various different quantum classical uh, GPUs, uh, quantum computers, et cetera. And we'll, we'll be able to just basically have this like supercharged engine that is able to like super efficiently solve various different problems across industries. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, you know, we really appreciate, you know, drawing on your position and, and your expertise in this field um, that there is, you know, so much more to learn about, but with what we know now, it is just such an awesome opportunity to be able to learn more about this. And I'd love to now give you the opportunity to discuss, you know, some of the future of your work, um, what's going on at Q Control that people could be excited about, and, and any upcoming projects or bodies of work that you're focused on. 
Yeah, definitely. Q Control is always uh, working on a lot of uh, various different areas, um, especially given the fact that you know we we have quite a diverse product portfolio. We're continuing to expand uh, our Black Opal, you know, our educational offering, and really get more into the educational sector. So far, you know, it's been a lot of focus on upskilling uh, the industry and working with, you know, enterprises and consultancies to uh, upskill their workforces. But uh, we're starting to really partner with a lot of various universities to build our uh, technology and uh, the, the lessons and modules that we've developed directly into school curriculums. So that's really exciting. And, you know, we're really getting to kind of like the core of where uh, industry uh, candidates will start to emerge. And then we're also continuing to just work with a lot of these uh, manufacturers who are building out new quantum technologies to help put our software into their existing platforms and to, you know, essentially integrate our tools into what are going to be the new platforms that people use to access quantum computers. And so that's always really exciting. There's, you know, so many different companies out there right now trying to develop and scale their quantum computing hardware. And we want to really partner with as many of them as possible. Our technologies, it's it's basically hardware agnostic. So it's not particular to any sort of um, way or method of developing quantum computers and using them. So we uh, really get the opportunity to work with all sorts of players in the industry. And uh, we're continuing to expand uh, the various different platforms that we support and the uh, ways that users can access um, these devices. Well, that is great news. The word access feels very important in the context of this conversation as you know we're continuing to develop and, and learn more. So we will be excited to you know, see those developments and uh, really just tuning into uh, those projects that you've been describing and, and excited to see how those materialize. You know, Rowan, I have to extend a thank you on behalf of myself and everyone listening. This has been a real joy speaking with you and being able to hear your perspective on this really important topic. So thank you so much for joining us and for sharing so generously so much wisdom and insight about quantum computing. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Brayden. This has been a super interesting discussion. Um, and yeah, I love kind of getting into uh, these sorts of topics that really, you know, they are open-ended and that's what's exciting about the, the industry at this point. So yeah, thank you. You've been listening to Looks Like New on KGNU Radio, a show that asks old questions about new tech. We've been speaking with Rowan Wu. If you'd like to learn more about her work, you can find her on LinkedIn and learn more about Q-Control through their website online. I'm Braden Madavi, today's host of Look Like New, a production of CU's Media Economies Design Lab. You can find out more about our work at colorado.edu slash lab slash medlab. <laughs>